The following podcast is a Green Fresh Media production. Steve and I would have an event to go to and we would take the keg and go and set it up. And, you know, half the time it worked, half the time it didn't. Half the time it, you know, one of the original ones, we actually infused beer gas, which is half or partial nitrogen, partial CO2. And we learned very quickly that CO2 uh, (laughs) sours coffee immediately. Born into the natural products industry, he's a serious social strategist who loves natural foods and has his pulse on everything the industry has to offer. Join Kyle on his journey navigating through the natural products industry where he will be connecting you with brands, founders, retailers, influencers, industry leaders, and so much more to give you a behind the scenes look. Welcome to Time to Grow with your host, Kyle Marsham. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Time to Grow pod. We have a very fun topic to discuss today. Before we do that, before we dive into it, go over, hit that subscribe button, share with your friends, and please show us some love. It really does mean a lot. All right. So today we are diving into the alcohol space. The alcohol space in Canada, specifically in Ontario, is kind of crazy, right? You have, it's extremely regulated. You only have so many stores you can go into. The grocery section or the grocery channel is extremely difficult to get into. So let's just pause there. And then over the last two years, the amount of innovation and local brands that have entered the alcohol space has been absolutely insane. You have low sugar, you have cleaner ingredients, cold-pressed juices. You even have a local brand launching their own gin. I'm not even sure what they're calling it anymore. Do you call it, is it a better-for-you section? Do you think we'll have a better-for-you natural section in LCBOs in, in, in the near future? I don't know. I think I would shop it, but I actually think that would be pretty cool. Today, we are very fortunate to be talking with Mitchell Stern. He's been around the block in the CBG space, co-founded Station Cold Brew, and now he's launching Darling Mimosa, the very first canned mimosa in Canada. It's pretty cool. I've tried it. The packaging is on fire. The social media strategy is fire, and it tastes unbelievable. If you're like me and you like to have a little mimosa on a Sunday morning, you got to try Darling Mimosa. On today's episode, we talk about everything from starting out, building teams, scaling, raising money, and the tricks and tips of being a successful entrepreneur. Before we start, again, hit that subscribe button, share with your friends and family. It really does mean a lot. Let's jump into it. Welcome to the show, Mitch. I want to know everything. Let's start from the very beginning. Introduce yourself. Let's get into it. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Happy, happy to be here and, and, and have a chat. We've had some, some good ones in the past. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my, na- my name is Mitch. Obviously, great intro. Thank you. I feel a little bit humbled. Been in CPG for about 12 years officially, but before that, you know, was in the agency world working with CPG brands. So went from one side of sort of big business and, and, and big budgets over to, uh, the opposite side and the scrappy startup side. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, I love this space. It's been it's been quite the journey, you know, station building station from the ground up with with my partners and and all the internal and external 
external partners um, who helped that brand grow across Canada was such a such a valuable experience for me in terms of really understanding what it takes to to build a CPG brand and and compete with ma- the majors as a small scrappy startup as we were. It's uh, it's been quite the journey, and and you know the best part about it is is really the community of people that I've met along the way. You know, early in my career, people who helped me answer questions and pick up the phone and and were able to help me. And I I spend a lot of time doing that now and giving back to other entrepreneurs who, you know, on a formal basis or an informal basis, if I can help, you know, answer some of those questions that might save some time or money for those entrepreneurs in the mm-hmm. future. That's really important to me because, yeah, I, I think giving back is is super important. So, well, I think that's how yeah, it's been. You reached out to me, right? You were just, I was so excited, right? You dropped it in my DMs on LinkedIn. I was like, wow, this is so cool. This guy's like, because I know who you were, right? I know, you know, just from being industry friends or whatever and you, and then we we connected and I was just like, you literally just connected just to connect and say, hey, how can I help you? How can I, you know, impact what you're doing? And let's, you know, oh, I'll come on the podcast. I'll do this. I'll do that. It was really from a, a genuine perspective or whatever, right? So thank you. And I'm sure you've, you've been doing that across the board. So so cheers to you. Yeah, it's funny. I've spent uh, probably more time on LinkedIn in the past six months than I ever have. And also probably <laughs> more time on LinkedIn than, than other social platforms, which is which is intentional. But, you know, I, I've recognized that, you know, networking and building building relationships is something that I'm extremely passionate about and, and something mm-hmm. that I, I seem to be pretty good at. And that's led to all sorts of opportunities. And, you know, my intention is not necessarily just for opportunities or, or selfish reasons, of course. Naturally, that's part of it. But, you know, I just think that there's so much value you in in connecting dots and and helping people because like we can save each other a lot of time and mm-hmm. money and and resources so um if there's ways to do that and you know just trusting that if something comes back around for that that's great but you know we'll c- call it karma call it whatever you want that's part of it for me well and i think that's why uh, that was kind of the 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 number one reason for me starting the time to grow podcast was you know being on the broker side of the world right we have a lot of founders you know coming to us that are just starting out or they're in their like you know three to five years or they're large you know global brands and they all have different pain points along the way and if i can you know interview guests like yourself or people that have kind of gone down that path and they can drop just little bits of insights to help the next generation or the you know, someone else trying to it, it adds a lot. I had someone email me the other day saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just starting out and building an omni-channel brand and little snippets from some of the episodes. He's like, they were so powerful and, and really helped me think about things a little bit more clearly. So I'm like, like, wow, you know, it's a, that means a lot. Right. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's great. I've had uh, recently actually have been introduced and, and have an opportunity to help um, in, in a bit of a different way. I've, I've been um, asked to be uh, like a venture scout um, with um, ClearCo, if you're familiar with them, yeah, yeah. Um, or formerly ClearBank. But uh, yeah, they're, they've got obviously a tremendous amount of money to deploy um, and looking to help startups. I think there's a bit of a misnomer about them that they're only focused on tech. And my goal is mm-hmm. to see if there's you know food and beverage CPG entrepreneurs who are seeking capital that is non-dilutive. And again, just sort of like refer them to ClearCo and using my network to, to to do that. So that's something that I've been exploring recently, which is which is interesting for me to learn about the world of you know venture cap from the other side of the table. I'm not the one necessarily mm-hmm. asking for yeah. money, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just another example of how I'm looking to sort of like build my network and help help other entrepreneurs um, in in, yeah. in scaling. So yeah, that's awesome. 
I really wanted for you to touch on, you know, the early days of maybe getting into the CBT space, right? Even, you know, how did you get into that category? Did you just come across and it and, and you saw maybe stuff that you were seeing in the US and, you know, you saw an opportunity in Canada in cold brew or, you know, were one of the other founders already doing it? And then what were kind of maybe some of the first five years, like in terms of things that you learn, things that you prioritize, stuff that you outsourced? Like, I want to know, like maybe the micro details for the listeners. Yeah. I mean, the story of Station is I had left my job uh, in the agency world, not really knowing what was next for me. I knew that I was passionate about brands and I, you know, I'm a hyper creative guy and was trying to sort of like harness that creativity in, in a way that was productive and sort of helped me along my career. And I, I had been approached by, by Steve, who's CEO and, you know, founder of, of Station uh, to help him out on the sort of like brand development side and, and, and sales side. You know, I was pretty well connected in the food and beverage world in Toronto. And that was key to us, to us starting. And quickly that became a partnership and we realized we had something really quickly. And the other, the other, founder and, and partner, Mike, who's sort of like comes from the coffee world and he was the recipe product maker. Uh, so the three of us had really a really great, have a really great dynamic with complementary skill sets. And, you know, the first lesson that I talk about all the time that I learned really early on in, in that dynamic was uh, it's really important. I'm, I'm so thankful that I had two partners to go through that journey with because uh, I can't, and I know many, you know, solo founders who deal with everything top to bottom on their own. And I, I I personally couldn't have done it without those guys. And and the biggest thing for me is knowing what you're good at, focusing on that and surrounding yourself with people who complement that. I think that that is uh, without question, one of the biggest learnings that I had uh, along the way in the beginning of station. We, you know, we kind of fell into it. We were watching what was going on in the U.S., and recognized an opportunity. We quickly sort of like brought a product to market, but had to figure out how to do it because nobody knew anything about cold brew at the time. So there's a difference between like, you know, if you were to launch uh, a cold brew product now or a product that's has some place in our, in the Canadian market, um, there are people you can talk to and there are resources you can, um, you can get to, to help you understand, you know, the nuances of it or, you know, how it shows up on shelf, pricing strategy, all of that stuff. That was not present for us. Like we were, we were genuinely like blazing a trail, I suppose. And, and, and that was kind of awesome because we got to sort of just figure it out on our own and our, um, you know, how naive we were admittedly kind of helped us uh, because Mm -hmm. we, we just sort of dove in head first and didn't think twice about it. And, you know, took the bumps as they came and learned as we went. And, you know, we, we sort of just like figured it out on our own. That's not to say we didn't have any external help. Of course, we, we have a tremendous amount of people who are sort of like advisors, partners, whatever, who helped us along the way. But, you know, I, I can think of a million stories where we did things the way we thought it was supposed to be done and it was wrong. <laughs> Do you have um, a, a particular example you can pull on that that would be relevant? Yeah, I mean, look, like we started 
we started making cold brew in a commercial kitchen called Evelyn's Crackers, and we rented a, a table and a shelf in a in a fridge, and <laughs> we were you know buying bottles from the only bottle company in Toronto, and we were hand labeling yeah. stickers that were not compliant at all that had <laughs> you know no UPC and just ingredients listed on the front with like a warped logo, and uh, you know Mike was literally riding his bike to this this facility every day and, and hand bottling and we were delivering in his van with his dog. And, um, but, you know, one thing that comes to mind is when we first started to try to really try to understand um, nitro cold brew and how to how to actually infuse nitrogen into the liquid, there there were times where we were in a, in a commercial kitchen where Mike had these sort of like Frankenstein style contraptions set up infusing liquid uh, nitrogen into the liquid in a keg. And, you know, we were doing it for events and, you know, the way it would work would Mike, Mike would be in the kitchen and like figuring it out. And then Steve and I would have an event to go to and we would take the keg and go and set it up. And, you know, half the time it worked, half the time it didn't. Half the time it, you know, one of the original ones, we actually infused beer gas, which is half or partial nitrogen, partial CO2. And, <laughs> We learned very quickly that CO2 uh, <laughs> sours coffee immediately. Yeah. And so there were all these stories of like, you know, it worked and then it didn't work. And we couldn't figure out why sometimes we had, you know, a really good nitrogen coffee and sometimes we didn't. And yeah, that's just like one of the first examples that come to mind of sort of like figuring no. out as you go and and learning by mistakes. Yeah, no, I love those stories. Everybody has a few of those that have that have started out the the growing pains and just learning on your feet and and navigating the the exciting world. The there's a huge difference between, you know, scaling that company from like up to a million dollars and then getting to five mil. And did you guys get investment? And, and what did that kind of look like? Because I feel like there's there's always a, a, a not a turning point, but, you know, I guess you could call them growing pains or whatever. When you got to start hiring a lot of staff and you really got to scale, you get into Loblaws. And what was that kind of like that 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 next phase, you know, like that's like phase five, you know, when you get start growing mm -hmm. really quickly and maybe looking at outside money right yeah no it, that that's you know been such such a journey and such a learning along the way you know we we were fortunate to have some some early on backers that were very close close to us and became just like part of the team basically and that helped us in the early days and then you know we did we did dragon's den in 20 2017 maybe i'm not sure I think it's still on Netflix. It's like season 12, but we did yeah, Dragon's Den, which was, which was an amazing experience. And, you know, really we went into that, um, not needing money, which is a great place to be. We were not in sort of like a rescue scenario, but we went into that for, uh, a couple of purposes for validation of our idea, mm -hmm. our concept, our brand, all of the above. Um, and we also went in just like knowing that we were getting into the scale where we were going to really need to like raise some capital and, and start to really grow the business. Um, it was just a really good exercise for us as founders to, to force ourselves into um, those tough situations and have those tough conversations and value the company publicly and all that fun stuff. And so mm -hmm. that was an amazing experience. We ended up with a deal there that didn't actually go through, for, just didn't make sense at the time. Uh, we had an amazing experience both on the show and in due diligence and all that fun stuff and ended up getting a little bit of investment from private group after that, that just made more sense for us at the time. And yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, it's so important along the way. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning as I go with, you know, now my new company, and then also now, you know, working with ClearCo and learning about different options to scale business, you know, non-dilutive options, because 
you know, there's, there's always the concern about giving up ownership of the company. And, you know, I think that there's no one right answer. You know, I think there's so many different scenarios and variables and, you know, going back to what I said before about surrounding yourself with people who compliment that, I think there's always amazing opportunities to bring in capital from strategic partners who can add value to the business daily. And, you know, that's something I'm always looking for, of course, like if, uh, I think there's a lot of different ways to raise money and get capital, especially have, if you have proof of concept. Um, but there is nothing like um, strategic money um, and being able to have people who are um, have skin in the game and can help you grow the business, whether it be through opening doors or answering questions or working through challenges or whatever that might be, uh, that's something that I'm learning pretty quickly. And, you know, I, I, I'm becoming that person as well for some other brands. Yeah. So it's, it's been a, it's been a fun journey, um, on that side of the business. Do you mind diving into that just a, a little bit more, right? Like raising money seems to be like the hottest topic. Every time you're on LinkedIn, you know, they just did a series D they got 200 million or this company just raised 3 million. seems like everywhere you look, there's this idea of raising money and it's like this really shiny object at the, at the end of the tunnel. Right. But you know, what, what kind of advice or ways can early brands, early founders start thinking about it? Like there's, you can go via the VC route, you can get bank money, you can get strategic. What would you say are like the, the two to three maybe options that would be higher on the list? Well, I think that always starts with what the end goal is for the business. And I think that mm-hmm. there's probably way too many people who don't actually know that answer to that question. You know, are you looking to make it a lifestyle brand that you have control over that, um, you know, may have a slow controlled growth that you want to keep control? And it's like, that's what you want to do. And maybe it's sort of like, a generational business. Maybe you want to keep it in the family and grow it and pass it along to your kids. Mm-hmm. Like that's one option. Do you want to just sort of capitalize on a market trend and an opportunity and, and scale it quick and sell it? Like it, that is step one for sure, because that will dictate what type of money you can go out and get. I think that way too many people get caught up in this uh, and I am guilty of it. Like there, there is this sort of like trend of as you mentioned on TikTok, or not TikTok, TikTok on the mind, um, as you mentioned on LinkedIn, <laughs> LinkedIn. Um, there is this trend of just like this public personification and uh, like it's it, it's becoming like a badge of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, raising capital in this round and this round and this valuation. And frankly, it's like um, it can be very detrimental to founders as it relates to focus because and again i'm 100% guilty of this in the past and and sometimes now you know you get too caught up in looking at other businesses and what they're doing and you do not focus on your own and you know there are plenty of examples of valuations that i cannot comprehend um, across the board and then there's some that you know maybe valuations are too low and so you know obviously traditionally there is a, a, a formulation to, to figuring out valuation and fundraising, right? Today, it's very different because there are so many non-tangibles that add to value of a business. And really what that comes down to is brand and community, right? Like, you know, easy example, always midday squares. They have built such a, an amazing community. And when it comes to valuation, sure, you can look at revenue numbers and distribution and distribution points and, and, and growth trajectory and 12-month trailing, but you have to somehow put a number on that sort of like brand loyalty. And that's where these massive valuations come in. And some of them are warranted and some are not. 
And I just think the advice that I would give to anybody listening, and also I'm saying this in the mirror to myself as a reminder, is, is just to not get caught up in, you know, other brands, what they've done. There are too many variables. Your business is unique and it's different and the people involved are different and the, the category is different and the partners are different. And so, you know, just focus, focus, focus on what you believe is true for your business and where you can see it growing and just focus on that. That's, that's the best advice I can give. Yeah, no, that's great. It's, it's actually funny that you say like how, how complicated the evaluation process is now, right? Like before it was, you know, multiples on your EBITDA or whatever. Now it's like, you got to take into consideration your follower count, your, you know, what you're spending over there, your AI, if you have any tech stacks or anything like that, all go towards the value of it, right? When before it was, it was still difficult, but much easier. Now it's, you know, what is your, your community look like? It's so funny. Midday squares is the perfect, perfect example. Cause they're doing mm-hmm. such a, an amazing job. And look, they've, they've really made the statement of, Hey, we're taking this company public. So that's their end goal, right? They want to, you know, take over, right? So they're very clear. And I think they, they, they set that out from day one and they're, they have the path carved out to, to hopefully get there. So yeah, no, they're, they've been fun to watch for sure. Well, I think, I think the lesson that I shared about, you know, really starting with your end goal and being very clear and hyper-focused on that. I learned that from Nick at Midday Squares. Like he's, Mm -hmm. he's a bit of an advisor and friend for me. And he, like, I have never met somebody who is so dead focused on one goal and will not stray from it. And it is, it's it's admirable. And, and that, that is obviously what they're doing and it shows up in everything they do. And they make decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. And because they are so firm in that they're not getting distracted by anybody else or any other business or any other, whatever it's, it is admirable. So that's where I learned that lesson. Yeah. And, and you were talking it. about, yeah. And you touched on, you know, the importance of having complementary founders, right. And you said you, when you guys started, everyone complimented each other and they had their own um, expertise, right. And you look at midday squares, they're just out in the public eye all the time. So you can really use them as an example, but you do have three, perfect examples of what like the perfect scenario look like where you got Jake who's you know PR 101 gets people pumped up really sells the brand you got Les Les Les, that's you know product focus and then you got Nick that's um you know the CFO CEO type or whatever and you know they're killing it definitely fun people and and I know a lot of young people are um you know looking up to them so they're you know they're a media company they're a CPG company they're they're doing a lot of good things right and Nick seems to be uh a genius in what he does. It's, it's been fun to and, watch. And I've taken that learning and I'm, I'm doing everything I can with, with my new company, Darling, um, uh, which, which, you know, I'll do a quick intro, I guess. Darling is, a is Canada's first canned mimosa and only one of a few in, in North America. And so I've moved my beverage knowledge into the beverage alcohol space. And, you know, we've crafted an authentic mimosa. Um, that's really, uh, rooted in helping people uh, see the bright side and and live in optimism and 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 create moments of celebration. But the team that we've crafted or created for Darling is, you know, my partner Kim is uh, one of the most incredible creative marketers I've ever met in my life. And so it's funny, like that was my role at Station. I've actually taken a step aside on the marketing side mm-hmm. of the business because Kim is just you know, I trust her immensely in, in what she's doing with the brand. And then Kate, who is sort of our CFO operations whiz, who brings to the table structure that I 
do not have and sort of, you know, I'm managing business development and sales and distribution. And, you know, we've got a, we've got a designer that's with us all the time because, you know, the brand is so important and, you know, I'm doing my best to uh, work with an amazing team of who are all females, which is also incredible. Uh, I'm the, I'm the only male on the team and uh, you know, building a team of people again, who complement each other and can, can bring value and, learn from each other and, and help teach each other things. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. So it's, it, it's perfect. I, I wanted to lead into Darling Mimosa because I'm fascinated by the alcohol space right now. It seems to be, you know, another one where, especially in, in, in Canada and Toronto, there seems to be a lot of energy around, you know, craft cocktails and, you know, breweries and even brands that were in the grocery space, like, um, well, juicery loop, they're all coming out with alcohol brands. So it's an exciting time for, for that industry and for, you know, entrepreneurs and, and you touched on darling mimosas, this moment of celebration, and it's where you're going to build it around, um, more of a lifestyle. Can you, can you dive into how important that is to what you're trying to build? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think first and foremost, we are not building a mimosa company. We're building a company that is rooted in celebration. You know, this, this idea is actually fairly fresh. We're only 14 months in and we're already in, you know, almost a hundred LCBOs right now um, wow. from idea, from idea to shelf. And, you know, really the idea was rooted in, I mean, it was, it was pandemic idea. So we were all a bit <laughs> down and, you know, really craving in-person moments and, you know, seeing friends and family. And, you know, really that's what it started with because I was genuinely enjoying a mimosa with, my partner, Kim, who's one of my best friends, uh, when this idea really came about. And, you know, it was a reminder of how important those moments are. And, you know, mimosas just happen to be something that is rooted in celebration, whether it be, um, you know, a birthday, the holidays, uh, a wedding or a bachelorette party or whatever. It's all rooted in celebration. Even mimosas are, you know, you, you, you enjoy mimosas on a Sunday brunch and re- you're really celebrating the fact that you made it through the night before and you're sort of getting together with your friends. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> but that's yeah. it's very true. And that's what people know mimosas as. And, you know, so I think that we've built a brand that we are so confident in as a master brand that can extend in the future into other areas of celebration. And that that can come to life in many different ways. Mimosas just happen to be our first product that that mm-hmm. sort of fits why we do what we do. And uh, it's been it's been so interesting learning about the alcohol space. You know, I think you mentioned it's funny because I spent so many years ingrained in the better for you beverage space, right? So yeah. the non-alc shelf. So let's call it the shelf at your local independent supermarket. The beverage fridge looks a lot different than it did 10 years ago. And there's a lot less Coca-Cola, Pepsi, energy drinks, etc. And it's all cold pressed juice and collagen water and coconut water and fresh pressed juice and cold brew. And, you know, that trend is very slowly moving into the alcohol space. You know, consumers are more educated than they ever have been. We know that Um, they're more focused on health and wellness than they ever have been. And so I think it's about like this term that I learned called guilt reduction. So if you consume alcohol, you know, everybody knows that alcohol is not good for you. (laughs) Yeah. But if you can, if you consume it, whether it be for social or whatever, um, you know, there's this idea of guilt reduction. So instead of consuming, you know, a thousand calories with a couple of drinks, maybe you can consume 500 
Um, and maybe you can do it with a product that has real ingredients or local ingredients or something that is a little bit functional. The functional stuff we're starting to see very slowly in the alcohol space, but mm-hmm. you know, really it's, it's driven by those trends. And with Darling, our job or our goal is to craft you know, an authentic mimosa that has a third of the sugar that you would uh, if you were to consume it or make your own. Um, it's a little bit light, it's very refreshing, and uh, you don't you don't have to feel guilty about having one and 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 in a moment of celebration. That's really what we're trying to do there. Yeah, I have a I have a few in my uh, fridge right now. Most of them <laughs> got consumed on Sunday, but because Saturday yeah. was was a good night. But yeah. um, how how is the alcohol space different than that better for you space? So you touched on a little bit, but from a business perspective, right? I know the alcohol space from it from the regulations of the LCBO and, you know, when they launched into grocery with some wine and beer and, you know, everyone went nuts in Ontario and then there's different laws in BC. How, how has it been navigating that? And what would you say are like the main pain points if you were to like go into the alcohol space? Cause I know it's quite complicated. Yeah. I think, you know, fortunately I have some great advisors who know the space very well and they helped us early on uh, as we, as we started to build the company, you know, when it comes to like beverage manufacturing and formulation and all that, like that stuff is, is second, second nature to me. Um, but learning about regulations and licenses and co-manufacturing and, and what types of licenses our co-manufacturer needs and the LCBO process and all of that stuff. And, um, taxation, it's, it's a whole new world. And, you know, we are currently just in the LCBO. We're, we're in about 40 or 50 on-premise or licensee accounts. Um, and we're trying to grow that as uh, bars and restaurants open back up again. Um, and we're only in Ontario right now. So, you know, I'm starting to really develop an understanding of the liquor boards across the country, what it takes, how it differs from Ontario. You know, Alberta, for example, is basically a free market. Um, which is very intriguing. And I think there's lots of opportunity there, but you know, we, I will be the first to admit are, are and have been very fortunate with the LCBO in terms of the process. Like usually, and I know many people who have tried to get in for a very long time and haven't been successful, you know, getting in is very difficult and staying in is even more difficult. And, you know, what we've done is because we've found such a niche and there's no competition yet, there probably will Mm -hmm. be next year. Uh, And and have confidently developed a, a quality brand that stands out on shelf that you know appeals to our consumer demographic. I think that's what helped us get in so quickly. We've developed a great relationship with the LCBO and they've been very supportive and I'm very grateful for that. But uh, it is a very, uh, you know, the barrier to entry for, for this space is tricky in Ontario because the LCBO is so important to growth um, and distribution. Um, but it's slowly changing as we've seen, you know, bars and restaurants are allowed to sell sort of to go product now, but there's still some regulations that I think, you know, need some work. For example, like, you know, we're not allowed to sell our product in grocery right now, even though Mm -hmm. you're able to buy wine, even though you can obviously buy every one of the ingredients in our product separately and make it yourself, we can't sell our product. And, you know, my hope is that will change because obviously I've got some great relationships in the retail side. Um, Why is that? What's the main reason? Just um, some of the rules that were created in, I guess, like 2015, 2016, um, wine cocktails and, and ready to drink wine products are not didn't make the list. Um, didn't make the list. And then there's also some stuff around, and be careful what I say. There's also some <laughs> stuff around some some sort of like major businesses who hold relationships with um Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, like the like the wine rack. There yeah. are products like like ours in the wine rack that are allowed to be sold, but we're not because we're the small guy. Yeah. Um, which is frustrating, of course. 
but um, you know, then there's rules and regulations around like direct to consumer. You know, last year in the pandemic, we we pivoted at station and we put a lot of emphasis on direct to consumer and we built an amazing sort of revenue stream. And I wanted to do that with Darling, but we can't because we yeah. don't manufacture our own products. So it's, you know, it's a bit weird that we're the owner of the brand and we can't sell direct to consumer, but I can sell to a bar who can then sell to a consumer. Yeah. Um, Is it different in the US? Add up there. Very different in the US. Yeah, you can go direct to consumer. Like you say, the model could go direct to consumer in the US. Yeah, it's very different in the US. Um, That being said, like I'm also very supportive of local businesses and I love supporting bars and restaurants. And, you know, my goal with Darling is to build really solid relationships, especially with a lot of those amazing local craft, you know, coffee shops and bottle shops and all of those places because I want to support them too. And I know what it's like to try and build a business like that. So it's a complicated world that I'm learning more about every day. And again, I've been fortunate to have some strong advisors that I can pick up the phone and complain to or call or ask questions to. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the most common things that, you know, I've been able, I've been fortunate enough to be interviewing quite a few, quite a few founders and they're all, it's all mentors, ask questions, reach out and get that guidance, right? And partner with the right people. Touching on the the bars and food service, I would think that the that mimosa, like, because no one's doing it in Canada, the mimosa opportunity is quite large, right? If you think about opening a bottle of champagne or Prosecco or whatever, it spoils, it, it goes flat quite quickly. You're providing an opportunity for them where they just crack a can, go in. So spoilage is probably a lot lower. The, the cost of the case is probably more, less than, you know, a case of the glass bottles or whatever. So there's a huge opportunity for the food service industry for you to grow, right? Yeah, we see we see a major, major opportunity there. And we've shifted even in the past couple of weeks, our focus a little bit to to really building that up. You know, I think that everything from golf courses to yeah, you know, any type of brunch place, obviously, to places that have a lot of takeout. I think there's such a unique opportunity there to uh, create efficiencies for staff and for bar and restaurant owners, you know, like you know, we do face challenges. I was literally golfing on Sunday and I went and talked to the food and beverage manager and he said, mm-hmm. you know, we have a contract. We have a contract with Labatt, so we can't bring you in, which is frustrating. But I'm used to that with Station. We had a lot of those challenges with Coke and Pepsi contracts. But, you know, we've shifted our focus onto that because I do think that there is a great opportunity to create efficiencies, as I mentioned, and and get our brand out there. You know, mm-hmm. bars and restaurants or licensees is is really a way to sort of like build your brand and get we'll call liquid to lips for for a product like that you know your your retail and and your lcbos is where you can really drive volume but Mm -hmm. it's a trial and awareness as you know and so you know bars and restaurants and those types of partnerships become a part of it you know you can get our product at all the drake hotel properties um and that's a great partnership we've we've figured out this niche there's a a lot of these sort of like unique uh, boutique uh, uh, motels and hotels who seem to really like our product. That's a great fit. And so we're working with a couple, um, in Prince Edward County, Solvable beach, the June motel June motel. Um, that place is awesome. Yeah. yeah. They're going to be on Netflix this week, actually. I um, know. I just but, saw uh, that. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, those, those types of niche partnerships are, are mm-hmm. what we're trying to build right now. So that's exciting. Well, it's exciting. Well, right, right on brand too, right? June Motel, those boutique hotels, there's what the Wander Resort, there's, it's like a whole new category yeah. of, you know, hotel living or whatever. You got the Airbnbs and you got these boutique and that's right on brand for you guys, right? That's like that's exactly uh, perfect consumer yeah. and everything. So that's a, yeah, that's a good strategy. What, um, so it's a question we, we get quite often from, uh, 
from friends and other listeners is that they're they're fascinated by what the day-to-day life is of an entrepreneur, right? Someone that's, you know, walked in 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 those shoes. So what like you're you're station cold brew, you're darling mimosa, you're now you're doing the clear coat thing, you're you're painting murals. Like you're, you're an artist by, uh, I guess that's a a hobby of yours. You love art in general. What does a day to day or a week look like for, you know, someone like you or, yeah. Oh, it's, um, well, it's never the same. I'll tell you that much, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a morning guy, which helps, you know, getting up and having a morning routine is really important to me. So I, uh, I recently moved to the beaches. So I've been, I've been actually just sort of getting out and going on walks in the morning to try and clear my head and move my body a little bit, which has been great. But, um, you know, I'm usually at my computer by eight or eight 15 at the latest, um, I try to take an hour, hour and a half before that to myself. Um, but you know, scheduling my days is interesting. You know, I've got darling as a top priority. There's no question. Um, you know, station is, is in a really great place and I'm not really involved in the day to day right now. You know, the people who are involved in running it are, more than capable and we've, we've got a good thing going. And, you know, then I've got the Clearco thing. I'm consulting with a couple of up and coming CPG brands, which are super exciting that I won't talk about yet, but uh, some really, really cool stuff happening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, organization and, and blocking time for me is, is, is the key, but you know, I'll oftentimes find myself at my desk till six or seven, but I'm also being a little bit cautious and trying not to be hard on myself about sort of this. There's over the past, we'll call it five years, whatever, if that number's accurate or not, this like hustle culture for entrepreneurs has been glorified. And I, yeah. I actually like firmly disagree with it because you know, there's, there's one thing to say that, you know, you need to work hard to be successful as an entrepreneur. And that is a fact. There is no question, but that does not mean that you need to be at your desk 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, that does not mean that you need to uh, discount your mental health or taking time for yourself or spending time with your partner or your mom or your dad or whatever. And that's something that I'm, I'm really actively and intentionally trying to focus on personally, because you know, my internal dialogue is oftentimes you should be working more. You've got this mm-hmm. to do. You've got this to do. And prioritizing is important to make sure that you're checking those boxes and there are things that need that have timelines. But, you know, I'm trying my best to manage my schedule accordingly, take the time to do things that bring me joy and that I can just sort of like put my phone down and forget about things. And for me, that's drawing. There's no question in art and design. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer your question, like my schedule is never the same. And, and most of the time I relish at that. Sometimes I, I seek a little bit more structure, um, yeah. but it also changes week to week and month to month. And, you know, what it looks like now will probably not be what it looks like in December or next yeah. February or whatever. So it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm trying to spend more time helping other entrepreneurs again, whether that's on a consulting basis or, or what have you. Um, and then trying to spend more time on, on my sort of passions and, and the stuff that I love doing. So. Is there anything that you do that's very routine? Like you said, you get up and walk around. Are you a avid reader? Are you a smoothie guy? Do you like, uh, you know, are you drinking coffee every morning? Is there, cause there, there's always something, right? Like I found that I've started to, and I'm, I, I completely agree with, with, um, um, you know, that hard work and putting in, you know, 
15 hour days or whatever on your laptop isn't sustainable and it actually can negatively impact productivity and efficiencies. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there's, you know, I, I also don't think there's, you know, work-life balance. I think they're neat. They're, they're the same and it's how you deal with it and, and how you clear your head and, and be more efficient in less time, I think. But mm -hmm. is there anything that is routine for you that you do that gets you in the zone? You know, I read, I read in the morning that gets me clear and in a position of, mm -hmm. of motivational work. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that, uh, there's a few things that are consistent. Like I, I make sure to drink water as soon as I wake up, your body's dehydrated, but especially yeah. before coffee, coffee is absolutely a routine. You know, that was, that's some of the insight that we had with station from the beginning was like, um, there is nothing more routine based than coffee. And, you know, I'm a hot coffee guy in the morning even though I love cold brew, cold brew for me mm -hmm. is an, is often, often an afternoon thing or like a pre-workout thing, or like a, I need some more energy thing. Uh, I'll oftentimes drink cold brew in the morning, but, uh, I've been drinking, um, I've been drinking mushroom coffee lately from a company called power plant, um, which is awesome. It's sort of like Canadian version of four Sigmatic, I suppose. So they've got a few different blends, uh, of mushroom coffee, because I think sort of like the adaptogen world is very intriguing to me. And I'm, sort of dabbling on how that impacts my physical and mental health in terms of productivity and uh, immunity and all that fun stuff. But, you know, I go through phases, truthfully. I would love to sit yeah. here and say that every morning I wake up and I meditate and I breathe and I journal and all that fun <laughs> stuff. And I do do those things, but it is, uh, it's inconsistent. This is like real Mitch talking. Again, I'd love to for that to be an everyday thing. Getting better, go through phases and try not to be too hard on myself when I don't do that every day. So, you know, there's, there's lots of things that are routine based. I'm a, I'm a big sort of like exercise guy. So I try to move every day, whether that's being on the Peloton or, um, or just going for a walk or doing some weight training, whatever, like that's important to me and my mental health. So that's, that's something that's, that's pretty routine for me. It took me a while in the pandemic to figure out what that looks like. And the Peloton definitely helps. And you want to talk about a brand that's built a community and helps sort of like with identity, like Peloton is such an interesting brand and business to watch because, you know, they've, they've built this community of people who are now interconnected with the same sort of goal. And it's actually become part of people's identity, whether you agree with it or not. Like a lot of people say, Oh, I Peloton. And then they say, they sort of create this bond. And then it's like, you start talking about your favorite instructor and what types of workouts on Peloton you do, because it's not just biking. And it's so fascinating to watch. And I'm like part of that for sure. I don't, you know, yeah. who's your favorite instructor? I have a Peloton. I'm, I'm, I'd like to say I'm on it five, six days a week, but you know, I'm, a, I'm consistently with three, four days a week. So who's your favorite instructor? Uh, I'm, I'm an Emma Lovewell fan. She's, she's my favorite instructor just because I'm a big music guy and, and, uh, her, and music is what makes my decision for Peloton, to be quite honest. Like I look at the playlist every time before and, uh, I like the music she chooses. So that's where I'm at, but no, it's but actually that, funny. I've been, example. I've been using her. I've been, I've been, uh, spinning to hers the, the last maybe five or six sessions or whatever. She's great. I'm also, I'm a sucker for country music, especially in the summer. So there's a bunch of country rides that I do. Nice. Uh, mostly if, mostly if I want to like not exert myself too much and just sort of have fun and not think yeah, too much yeah. about it, that's, that's my go-to. So anyways. Yeah. With that said, I gotta, I gotta get on today. I was going to go on this morning and I was like, ah, I don't think I slept too well last night. Maybe I'll go on tonight. <laughs> but that's important. Like sleep is so important to, um, to deciding, you know, what your routine looks like that day. Because, you know, again, like 
sleep is probably one of the most important things. I feel very fortunate that I don't have an issue sleeping and I get a lot of sleep mm-hmm. and, and good sleep. It's funny. Like I've always wondered, I'm like a very creative thinker. So my mind is always in a million places, yeah. which generally I think would lead to trouble sleeping because you can't shut mm-hmm. off your brain, but I somehow have the ability to shut it off when I go to sleep. So I'm not, I'm knocking on wood over here. Like I feel feel pretty happy that I have the ability to do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty strong sleeper as well. I, I bought a, um, what the heck's it called? An aura ring. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with aura. Mike Faddock yeah. got me into it. He had his, he was, he was speaking so highly of it. And then I kind of like ordered one on the spot because I'm, I, I'm fascinated by my sleep. Why sometimes I don't sleep well or why, you know, and how other things have impacted my sleep. So it gives you a score. So it shows your readiness in the morning. And you'll, you'll look at it and it'll be like, oh, you got a 60 readiness score. And then it'll say, try not to exert yourself too much today. You know, and I'll be like, then like you're walking around during the day and you're like, yeah, I'm a little bit fatigued, but you don't know why. Are you like, what did I do last mm-hmm. night? Maybe I had a big steak before bed and I should have eaten something a little bit lighter. And then you'll notice days mm-hmm. where your ready scores through the roof and you're like, just getting crap done like crazy. Right. So it's, you really, really are aware of how you're sleep impacts your productivity. So it's pretty cool. I, I, I don't have nice. it on right now. I think it's charging, but it's a uh, aura rings. Yeah, definitely cool. Technology, man. I know. Right. <laughs> I just like showing people right. it's got like the chip on it or whatever. I got one last question and we've really touched on it, you know, many times throughout this conversation, but if there was one thing to help the listener or the listeners grow, you know, and, and advice, what would it be, right? Starting, scaling, succeeding in the CBG space is difficult as is. What, what's one thing that, that you would pull out of this conversation for, for advice? The biggest piece of advice that I learned that sticks with me that I always share is um, something that um, is really sort of like uh, important to me, both from a personal and professional uh, level. Like I, I outwardly talk about mental health a lot. You know, I have a tremendous amount of anxiety, that goes up and down and I try to balance it with mm-hmm. different things. And I was on antidepressant like medication for, for a very long time. And wow. um, I'm, pr- I'm proud that I'm off of it. And I talk about it openly because I think it needs to be, um, especially for, for males. But, you know, something that, uh, that that medication sort of numbs you and doesn't allow you to experience the highs and the lows, right? Like it, it, it at, on purpose, you know, keeps you stable so that you don't have to deal with that. And when I came off of them, which coincidentally was around the same time we started station. I, I started to realize that I was missing those really high highs, those moments of joy and love and, and excitement, and also the lows of you know sadness or depression or whatever that that looks like. And what's interesting is as we started to build station, I started to recognize the 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 similarities of that you know up and down, call it a roller coaster, whatever you want to call it, and how that relates to the you know, entrepreneurial journey. And so my, something that I'm constantly keeping in mind, again, on the daily, as it relates to my mental health, but also building businesses, you need to uh, recognize when you're in the highs, uh, appreciate them, give yourself some credit, take some time to like really soak it in. And then when you're in the lows, uh, acknowledge it, uh, realize that you're there, be okay with it. And maybe there's a learning or lesson for you that got you there. And then just trust that it's going to come back up because it, it's all cyclical. And again, like I'm a very visual guy. So you can look at a roller coaster. You can look at like, uh, what was that? What was that thing at uh, Canada's Wonderland, the jet stream that like comes around and like stops at the top and then sometimes goes yeah, this yeah. way and sometimes goes this way. Like 
actually my partner Steve at station taught me this, like that thing is, is cyclical. It's going to go around and around. The goal is to keep it at the top as long as possible because you want to mm -hmm. stay in those highs. Yeah. But when you're in the lows, just know that it's okay and it'll come back around and it's not permanent. And there's probably a lesson for you there to try and make sure you're not there again. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic advice. I think that's some some of the best we've received. You know, you can you can lose yourself in the lows, right? And like you said, mental health and stuff like that. And then you know, if you don't savor the the wins and and learn from them both, right? Then you you're gonna have a mm -hmm. tough time, you know, from a mental health and perspective, I, and then just the people around you and everything, right? And I do lose myself in those lows, no question. Like I, I'm sitting here preaching this uh, that I I practice as much as I can, but you know, it is I'm I'm human. Uh, I can only do so much, and I try to I try to be a little bit uh, compassionate towards myself as it relates to that. Yeah, so. I think it's I, I think it's about just being aware of it, right? Everyone's going to get down, right? It's hard your your emotions mess with you, right? It's just like when you get to that point, it's just like okay, you know, this is normal. What and then yeah. reflecting, right? And then you're you know you're in a pretty good space after that. No question. No question. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a piece of advice that I sort of learned through experience, and you know, I, I shared as much as possible, and I hope I hope it will help some people through some some tough times or appreciate those those wins. Yeah. No. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It was a it was awesome talking with you. If the listeners, if you guys want to contact Mitch, I'm I'm guessing the best way is LinkedIn right now sure. um you know drop in his dms and, and hit him up he, he's always there to help if you are in ontario and you're an lcbo check out darling mimosa you won't be disappointed they're absolutely fantastic mitch thanks again really appreciate it listeners don't forget to hit subscribe share the episode with friends and families there'll be links in the in the in the bio with with stuff to D darling mimosa to mitch's contact information feel free to go there and check out more information you know really appreciate it and don't forget it's always time Time to grow, everybody. Take care.